I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. It's one thing to listen to your parents' advice. It's another thing to take your parents' advice. The author, Amanda Peters, who you're going to hear today, knows all about that. Because she probably wouldn't have written her debut novel, The Berry Pickers, if it wasn't for her dad. So the book tells the story of a Mi'kmaq family from Nova Scotia who travels to Maine to work in the blueberry fields every summer. On one such trip in the early 60s, the youngest daughter, Ruthie, who is just four years old, goes missing. Now, I should be clear, that's not the story Amanda's dad had in mind. He just wanted her to share some of his own experiences picking berries in Maine. But Amanda's a fiction writer, and she did what fiction writers do. So like I said, it's one of the most talked about Canadian books of the year. The Berry Pickers had great reviews in the New York Times and the Washington Post. It won the 2023 Barnes & Noble Discovery Prize for Best Debut Novel, and it was shortlisted for the Atwood Gibson Writers' Trust Prize. Amanda Peters is a member of Glue's Cap First Nation, and she lives not too far from there in Falmouth, Nova Scotia. She joined me over Zoom to talk about it. Here's our conversation. Tell me a little bit of the story about how the, how the book came together. It was something about your dad, right? Yeah. So my dad and his brothers and sisters and my grandparents used to go down to Maine in the 60s and 70s to pick blueberries in the summer. And they would do that for like extra money for the winter and school supplies. And my dad always said, when I started writing, he said, I, I think you should write about the berry pickers, write about us. And I said, no, dad, I, I write not, I write fiction. I make things up basically. But he was very convinced that this would make a great story. So he convinced me to go to Maine with him. So in 2017, him and I went down to Maine to the berry fields and he showed me where they used to work. And he told me all these wonderful stories and he explained how berry picking worked back then. And while I was down there, the story just started to come to me and yeah, I guess that's how it came about. And I say, yeah, my dad was right, but I don't like to tell him that too often. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a wise move. What kind, of, yeah. what kind of picture was your dad painting for you of, of, of being down there? Just a really good picture of like family and being close and working hard. And just some of the like sitting around the campfires at night and playing practical jokes on people. And there were some sadder stories and there were some stories of violence. Um, but mostly he remembers it as a very positive experience. Why do you think it was so important to him that you write a book about that experience? Uh, He often says that he feels like Maine is his second home because of this experience and because of the time they spent down there. And I think he just has so many fond memories of that time. And I I also, I don't know if he did this on purpose, but it's often a part of Atlantic Canadian history that we kind of overlook that we don't really know about because the Mi'kmaq still do go to Maine, not as much as they used to, but they still do go to Maine to pick berries in the summer. So, yeah, I think he he just had such fond memories and he had so many great stories that he thought someone should be telling the story on a bigger scale, I guess. Jeez, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was still happening, that Mi'kmaq were still going from from down to Maine to go berry picking. Yeah, some people will take vacation to go down and do backbreaking work. At a, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why. It's not my cup of tea, I don't think. <laughs> I want to read a book. <laughs> I heard that or write one. I heard the first line of the book came to you while you were down there. 
Yeah, yeah. The first line of the first chapter, not the ep, uh, not the prologue, but the first line of the first chapter, Joe's chapter, uh, the day that Ruthie went missing, the f- black flies seemed to be especially hungry. And I don't know if I was getting be- eaten by black flies. I, I assume I must have been, and uh, it just inspired uh, the story to unravel from there. Um, a girl goes missing in the story that you tell around Highway Number Nine, which cuts down through Maine. For people who haven't been there, tell me a little bit about that area. Yeah, uh, it's called the Airline Route, I do believe, and it's uh, it's it's very well traveled, um, and it cuts through Maine down to Bangor, and there's all these like little towns off the sides, and there's blueberry fields everywhere. And I was just down there recently with my dad. I went down to the States to do my American launch um, about a month ago. I went down to Portland. And so dad and I traveled the same route. Um, the first time we saw the blueberries in the summer, so the fields were blue and green. And this time it, it was the fall and they were bright red and it was just so beautiful. And it's just kind of like a little bit desolate, but in a beautiful kind of way, almost like Nova Scotia, but just a little bit different. Kind of snarly down there, right? Like it does seem kind of like the place you can get lost in. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, for sure. Especially if you turn down one of the little roads that lead to like different little towns and stuff. It's it's, But it's also beautiful. And when I was just there this past month, the leaves were all out and it was just stunning. Yeah, it was really nice. So the book has two narrators, uh, as mm-hmm. I mentioned in the introduction. The first voice we hear from is Joe's. Uh, tell, tell us about Joe and his story. Yeah, so Joe was six years old when Ruthie goes missing, and he's very close to his little sister. The the other kids tend to be a little bit older, and and him and Ruthie are quite close. And he carries the guilt of being the last person to see her for the rest of his life, and it it impacts him in very uh, negative ways. Um, and I, I was when I was writing the story, it was originally just Joe's book. There was no Norma Ruthie in the story. Um, but she was like, I need to be, t- I need to tell my story. I want to tell my story. So I did put that in, but it was originally just Joe's story about how he was unable to deal with that guilt and that grief of of what he thinks is losing his sister. The way in which he is uh, unable to deal with that grief is is interesting in how it's portrayed in the book. You mentioned yeah. you you mentioned that um, you sort of give away the plot uh, in in the first first couple of chapters, but. Um, it's sort of unpredictable um, and very real to me without saying too much about the way he sort of deals with with this grief. But I don't want to give too much away. But we can say that he's complex. He's not a saint. And he, he does things in this book that are um, very like reprehensible for a main character to do. Um, and yet you feel sort of like compassionate for him and, and compelled towards him. Talk to me a little bit about writing him, how you find your way inside his head, a little bit about where his story came from. Yeah, I think as humans, we're all flawed, right? We all have flaws. His are a little bit more extreme than most people in the book. But you have to understand that with trauma comes a, res- a response. And the responses aren't always positive. And, and he, he, he has to deal with that himself. And I don't know, I just loved the character. And I loved developing a character who is real, that reflect a real human being. Um, we are not perfect. He's not perfect. But he is redemptive, right? He has, he has some redemption in the end. He, he is a good person. In the end, um, yeah, I did have a mentor tell me while they were reading my manuscript that it was very brave to write a novel of all despicable characters. But I don't think they're despicable. I think they just are flawed. And that in the end, with the exception of one character, Norma's mother, they all are redemptive in the end. What did you learn about people like Joe, um, you know, pe- people who experience like that tremendous grief and, and kind of guilt-based grief at such a young age? Um, I didn't. Well, that's a very difficult question. Um, I don't know if I learned so much from Joe as I did from Norma, because I relate more to Norma, which is funny because it was never meant to be her story. 
But I, I did what the thing I learned from Joe, I guess the biggest thing would be that sadness and anger. And I think I say this in the book. I do say this in the book. The sadness and anger are the are the different sides of the same coin um, because he is so sad and he's so guilt ridden that it does turn to anger and that does lead to violence. So I think we have to recognize that that can happen, but also that he his resolution to that was get away. I don't want to give too much away. I'm trying to parse my you're words. Doing, you're doing a great job, by the way. You're, okay. You're, you're so his, 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 the, what he thinks is going to be best is for him to get away from the people he loves. Um, so you got to have some compassion for him that he thinks that's the only thing that will save the people he loves. Before we talk a little bit about how you saw yourself in Norma's character, um, tell, tell us a little bit about Norma. So Norma is raised by a relatively affluent family in Maine. Um, and she has these dreams from a very young age um, of being elsewhere and having a different mother and having a brother. But her her overbearing mother and a bit of a cold father, but still loving in a way, just convinced her that it's nothing but dreams her whole life. And she always wonders why she turns quite brown in the summer and they, they pawn it off to an Italian grandfather. And yeah, and she just goes through her life always feeling like she doesn't belong at the, that there's something missing. You told me that the the book was originally just Joe's story, Joe's story of of, of you know losing his sister literally and figuratively at mm-hmm. uh, at such a young age, and how that led to sort of a, a cycle of violence and, and 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 problems that sort of haunted him throughout his life. And you said something like, you know, at some point I realized I had to have Norma tell her own story. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm loopy, but I I, <laughs> voice is, I always say that because I just want to tell people I'm okay. Um, but there's a, there's a voice in my head saying every time I tried to write about her uh, from his perspective, it didn't work. And like, if it would just be his story, it would have been a very short book. It would not have been very interesting. Um, and it would have been way too sad. So she just kept saying, I want to tell my story. I want to tell my story. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I gave in and I, I let her tell her story, I guess doesn't sound loopy at all. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to give anything away here, but I think even the people listening to this who haven't read the book can start to infer, you know, what's what's going on here you yeah. know, with Ruthie going missing when she was four and, and, you know, Norma wondering why her skin is so much darker than, mm-hmm. than, than her family's in the summertime and sort of getting this like, you know, pat bad answer about some like long lost Italian Sicilian relative. Yeah. What, what do you mean that you saw yourself in Norma? Uh, I'm a mixed race. I'm my father's big mom. My mom is not. My mom's a settler ancestry here in the Valley. And I've always kind of like not really felt like I belonged in certain situations in either way. And I always felt kind of like insecure in my own skin, uh, metaphorically, um, not not literally. Um, and I just, <laughs> I, I felt like her, like she's, her, it's a different situation, obviously. I know my parents are both lovely. I get along with everybody. None of this trauma has happened to me. Um, but she feels like something's missing, like she doesn't belong and that she just really wants to fit in somewhere. And I've kind of dealt with that, my own securities with that. So I think it was really kind of easier to write her that way because of my personal experience. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. You, you uh, were talking there a little bit about, you know, trying to find a, a place and, you know, um, trying to figure out who, who you were. I find that really interesting in sort of your own story about becoming a writer. And I, I was doing some research on you to get ready for this interview. And I read something that like becoming a fiction writer helps you give a better understanding of yourself, which is not an uncommon thing for me to hear on the show, but that it gave you a, a better sense of your role in your community. Like you as a fiction writer gave you a sense of your role in your community. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think just to tell the stories, like like I said, there's nothing truer than fiction. It, it all comes from somewhere. So a lot of people before they picked up this book didn't know that the Mi'kmaq were berry pickers, right? Um, they didn't understand, maybe they didn't understand some of the trauma that, that's associated when a girl goes missing. And I think we in Canada can all talk about that now um, openly, and we need to talk about that openly. So I think um, I'm a better representative, even though it's fiction, I can be a better member of my community by telling these stories. Does that make sense? Right. The, the the a storyteller in any community is a is an important figure in and maybe an undervalued figure in in any kind of community. I know you know growing up in Newfoundland, there were people in rural communities who I kind of knew as the as the storyteller. You start to see yourself in in that sort of role, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, and I, I'm really lucky to be surrounded by such amazing Mi'kmaq storytellers in Nova Scotia and in Atlantic Canada that have um, helped me and supported me and have paved the road for me way in advance. So yeah, I just feel very fortunate that I get to bring something to the story and help um, spread like the stories of the Mi'kmaq uh, around. I mean, they were talking about uh, the Mi'kmaq on CBS Morning with Gail King in the States. And I was like, that is so cool. <laughs> well, yeah, what, what does that mean to you? I, I, it was just very exciting. And I hope other Mi'kmaq uh, feel like I'm doing okay, and I'm representing them okay. And that they're excited that, uh, yeah, that we're we're all over the States right now. What kind of work did you do before you were a writer? Uh, I worked mostly in First Nations Governance and Administration, and my last job was a capacity development manager for the First Nations Financial Management Board. When you were doing that kind of work, did you want to be a writer? I've always wanted to be a writer since I was really little. Um, but you know what they tell you, especially back in like the 90s when I was graduating high school and going to universities, that you don't go into the arts because you won't make any money and you'll be poor your whole life and that. <laughs> That yeah. horrible thing they tell I've, you. So I, I've met that uncle too. I have. <laughs> <laughs> so you just think, well, maybe I don't, shouldn't do that. So I went and got all these degrees and got this really got these really good jobs. Some of them worked. I worked in my own community, Glooscut First Nation, for eight years, and I got these really good jobs. And then I decided in 2012 I was going to take this seriously. So I ended up doing a certificate in creative writing from the University of Toronto Continuing Ed, which was amazing, and was mentored by Lisa York there. And then um, I decided to apply to the Institute for American Indian Arts in New Mexico for their low residency MFA. And I kind of, I really found my people there, found my calling, so to speak. How, how do you mean? I just was surrounded by other writers, other writers of Indigenous descent, some not of Indigenous descent, but had a, a love in, in their heart for Indigenous storytelling. And you didn't have to explain anything. You didn't have to, you just had to write and you just had to love reading and love writing. And there's so many inspirational people there who were helping you. Um, 
Brandon Hobson and Tommy Orange and and Pam Houston and Chip Levin. These just these brilliant, brilliant indigenous writers helping you out. So and my classmates. It was just lovely. It must be gratifying, you know, to to have have wanted to be a writer and sort of been dissuaded away from a, a career in in the arts and to find yourself in you know in, in indigenous governments and and, ag, uh, and advocacy. And then to finally, you know, like you said, to meet to meet your people, and then to yeah. uh, to write this story and to have it to have it blow up the way it has, it must be it must be gratifying. It is gratifying. It's a little. I'm still kind of in the pinch me moment. Like I swear to God, my arms are bruised from pinching myself because I every time someone tells me one of these things um, that the book's doing so well, I'm like, how? Why? What's happening? But I'm very thrilled and humbled by it. Uh, I think. That's the most important because I'm just so surprised. Do you think about the characters after your book is over? Oh, of course I do. I take, think about them all the time. And I've been asked if, by people if I'm going to write other stories with the same characters. And I say no. I say Joe and Norma um, are done. I'm, I've told their stories. But people are like, what about Leah? Or what about May? We want May's story. May, want yeah, May's I would love story. to have May's story, really. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've, I've heard that a few times. And I said, right now, no, but I don't know if that inspiration comes to me in like five or 10 years from now, maybe there will be a May story. I don't know. This is how Lord of the Rings started. You know that, Amanda. This is it now. This is all, this is how it begins. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a tall order there. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, back to what we were talking about there, the, the, um, you know, you were, you, you were wanting to be a writer for a long time and you get to meet, you get to meet your people and you get to find out, you know, you get to start writing and obviously doing very, very well. And I love that story you told about your dad, you know, you're driving down the road with your dad and your dad saying, Hey, you should tell a story about the berry pickers, you know, Mi'kmaq berry yeah. pickers in Maine. Uh, has, has your father read the book? He has. It's his only book he's ever read, actually. The only novel he's ever read. Is that true? Uh, yeah, it is true. Um, my dad's not a big reader. He's more of like a work with your hands kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was his first book. And he sat down and him and my stepmom read it together. And yeah, my whole family's read it. And he said, uh, I'm really proud of you. And I was like, yay. <laughs> so it was nice. Yeah. I'm so I'm so glad to hear that, and I hope you. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not only am I glad am I glad he's proud of you, but I'm. I'm glad he got to you know help get that story told a little bit. Yeah, and it's funny because he's like, I'd like to read another story like that. So I bought him a copy of Michelle Good's uh, Five Little Indians when we were at the airport in Toronto. So I'm hoping he's reading that one now. Um, uh, Amanda, I I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed, like literally, I enjoyed the sitting down and 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 reading of this book. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thanks so much to Amanda Peters. Big uh, big Nova Scotia show today. Uh, Daniel McIver from Cape Breton is the other guest uh, on on the show. He was the, kind of the one big show. He would have been the other guest. And the other episode of the podcast we put up today, he's he's the guest there. Do me a favor. Even if Canadian theater is not really your thing, I you know coming into this show, I think the two disciplines I struggled with the most, wrapping my head around, are theater and visual art. Now, mind you, I've, you know, I've, I've learned a lot and I've come to really deeply appreciate both. I mean, you know, <laughs> good. I mean, that's part of the job description here, you know. When you're, when you're selling cars, you got to learn how to sell cars. You can't not, you know, only sell Tiburons. Point, point being, Daniel has a way of demystifying modern theater in a way that I've never come across before. And what a present man. So even if theater is not your thing, just listen to how this gentleman talks. Go check that out wherever you want. See you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.